Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you here this morning. If you've not met me yet, my name is Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're a first-time visitor with us this morning, welcome. We're thankful that God has brought you here to worship with us. We'll be in Psalm 46 this morning. So, having said that, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 46, and we'll be looking at this psalm in its entirety Though to do it justice, I would love to break it up into three sermons, but we will look at the entire text this morning, so I'll be reading verses 1 through 11, and before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God. So may we tremble before it, may we rejoice before it, and may we expectantly receive it from the Lord's mouth as it is delivered to us, expecting Him to do great things in us with it by his spirit. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 11. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold The works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. And as we have now heard from it, We together lift up our eyes to you, who are enthroned in the heavens, and we ask you for mercy. Mercy that we might rightly know you through your word and by your spirit. And so even as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master, so too now our eyes look to you, the Lord our God until you have mercy upon us. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I'm confident that many of you already know this, and for the few of you that don't, now you will. Psalm 46 was the favorite psalm of Martin Luther. Out of the entire Psalter, he adored Psalm 46, that 16th century German Protestant reformer. And he loved it so much that it actually inspired him to write probably his most famous hymn, a hymn that if you've been going to Sovereign Grace for any length of time, you know we sing both in the morning services and in the evening services, his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it really shouldn't surprise you that that was Luther's favorite psalm, if you know anything about this psalm, and if you know anything about Luther's life. Because there were times in Luther's life, once he was at the very center point of the Reformation in Germany, where he felt like the whole world was against him. And so he would fly to Psalm 46, as it were. Why would he fly to Psalm 46? Because what is abundantly clear in Psalm 46? It's abundantly clear that the Lord is with us. The Lord is for us. And so even if the whole world seems turned against us, we do not need to be afraid. And we can courageously continue to do what God has commanded us to do. And so that's why oftentimes, at the darkest of times in the German Reformation, Luther would turn to his protege, Philip Melanchthon, and he'd say, come Philip, let's sing the 46th psalm together and let them do their worst. And you can just look at the rest of Luther's life to see the courage he had, the lack of fear, or at least the lack of a willingness to submit to that fear, but instead to submit to the one who was his refuge and strength, and thus he did what the Lord had commanded him to do. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we can look at someone like Martin Luther and say, yeah, that was Martin Luther. I'm Joe Blow. I'm nobody. The Lord's going to do that in me? Yes. He's not going to use you probably the same way he used Luther. That was a unique time period. But he wants to do that same work of causing us to not fear but be courageous and continue to march towards Zion, the celestial city, no matter what we're experiencing in this life because we know that he is for us and because we know that he is with us. And so that's what we're going to learn this morning from this psalm. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at three realities about how God is with us and for us so that we will not be fearful but rather courageous and live the way God has commanded us to live. First of all, we'll see that God is with us and for us as our refuge. We'll look at that in verses 1 through 3. That we can hide ourselves in the sovereign Lord and creator of all things. What an unspeakable privilege. Secondly, we'll see that God is with us and for us as our helper. In verses 4 through 7. That as our enemies rage and rail against us. He is with us and for us as our helper, and he will fully and finally crush them 
We'll see that in verses 4 through 7. And then finally in verses 8 through 11, we'll see how the Lord is with us and for us as our peace. That he will fully and finally crush our enemies, destroying the weapons that they wield against us. And they will be silenced for all eternity. And here's the thing. I hope we're encouraged to see that ultimately this fulfillment of God being our refuge, our help, and our peace is realized and found in the coming, the giving of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is our ultimate refuge and our ultimate help and our ultimate peace. And so may the Lord press these truths deep into our hearts so that we are not afraid, but instead we courageously do whatever God has called us to do in his word, knowing that he is with us and for us. So let's look first then at how God is with us and for us as our refuge in the superscript and verse 1. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. The superscript is there in Hebrew. That's why I'm reading it to you. And what that superscript tells us is that the sons of Korah are the authors of this psalm, as has been the case ever since we've entered into book two back in Psalm 42. And it's according to Alamoth. You say, what in the world is that? Well, there's been a lot of ink spilled by the commentators about what Alamoth does and does not mean. And they all disagree with each other, by and large. So we're not going to waste our time trying to settle that. I think the footnote in your ESV there is actually very helpful. It's probably a musical or liturgical term. Let's leave it at that. And it's also a song. This is a song that the people of God were to sing. They were to have this in their hearts and in their minds and in their mouths. And what do the psalmists tell them to sing? Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. So what do we get right out of the gate? It is the privilege of God's covenant people. Those whom he has graciously blessed and saved. That they can look to the Lord as their refuge. And I start out that this is the privilege of the covenant people of God. Because throughout history, unbelievers have tried to claim this as their own. In times of trial and suffering. And we can understand the language is beautiful. The truths are comforting. But they don't apply to unbelievers. And so when someone like President Barack Obama at the time. Ten years ago stood at where the base of the Twin Towers was. At a 9-11 commemoration. And he closed out his little speech by reading Psalm 46. Everything within you should scream. That doesn't apply to America as a nation. That applies to the church. That applies to God's people. That's not a comfort for you. That is a comfort for God's people. And so we cry out as his covenant people that he is our refuge. And brothers and sisters, this is a glorious, glorious truth. Because the reality is that ever since the fall, we need a refuge, don't we? We need a refuge from the curse of God because we're now against him. And we're either going to find that refuge in one of two places. We're either going to find it in the created things that God himself has made. We're going to vainly seek it there. 
Or we're going to seek it in God alone, who is the creator and sustainer of all things. And so as you look at the world, you can see this, can't you? Don't you see people frantically trying to seek refuge? Didn't we see this all throughout the COVID craziness? People looking for refuge? And so where do we look for refuge? We look for safety. Well, let the government pass these federal laws so that I'll feel physically safe. Let me find my refuge in my job, in my wealth, in my health, in my looks, in my relationships, in my recreation, in my hobby, in some substance, in food, in shopping. Take your pick. It can be any created thing. We try to seek refuge in it from the curse of God upon this world, and it's all in vain. And so what happens for us as believers when God regenerates us and gives us the gift of faith, we exercise that faith and we trust in Him as our refuge. Not created things, but the Creator Himself who is blessed forever. Amen. And guess what happens? Our souls find rest there. In God who is our refuge. So this is the privilege of God's people. Here's the other privilege of God's people. When we find refuge in God, our creator and our redeemer, we also find strength, don't we? Because it's just as Augustine said in his commentary on Psalm 46, our refuge is our strength. And so as we are hiding in the Lord, hiding ourselves in Him, trusting all of His promises, that He is with us and that He is for us, we find strength in Him to do what He commands us to do, what His law commands us to do, to love Him, to love each other, to love our fellow man. We find the strength to be able to do this. We don't find that strength in ourselves. We don't find that strength in the world. We find that strength in God who is our refuge and strength. And I love how the psalm then sums this up in the second half of verse 1. Since God is our refuge and strength, and since that means we have everything we need for life and godliness in this fallen world, How do we summarize that? He is a very present help in trouble. Literally, he is a much found help in trouble. Or I like how one Hebrew scholar interpreted this. He said that God is exceedingly available. What a beautiful way to translate that. Exceedingly available. He's with us. He's there. He's abundantly available to help us no matter what the trial, no matter what the temptation, no matter what the grief, no matter what the loss. He's like a good parent, right? Parents of young children, I have young children if you haven't figured that out yet, so that's why all of my analogies are like parents with young children, (laughs) right? Isn't this incredible? (laughs) But parents with young children, your kids need you to be exceedingly available for them, don't you? They need that. Why? Because they're so needy. They're so dependent upon you. And that's just a little microcosm insight into how we are dependent upon him. And so the Lord says, I want you to know this about me. I am exceedingly available to you as your refuge and as 
your help. When you need me, I am there. I'm always there. And here's the thing, because this is true, because God's our refuge, because he's our strength, because he's exceedingly available to us, because that's true, we don't have to fear. That's the implication of all of this. Even though things will likely get really, really bad. And the text doesn't shy away from that. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Therefore, we will not fear. Because God's our refuge and strength and exceedingly available to us, we will not fear. Even though what? Even though the earth gives way? Whoa, that sounds scary. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea? Whoa, what? Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's tsunamis, there's earthquakes, there's mountains going into the ocean. What's being described to us here? It's a decreation of all things. The very fabric of creation that God himself made is being torn. I mean, one of the most frightening things is the mountains going into the ocean. That's a complete reversal, an undoing of the work of God on the third day of creation, isn't it? Where did the land and the mountains come from on the third day? From the waters. And so here they are under the command of God, his voice, going back to the waters from which they came. And yet, what are the people of God saying? They're saying, even though that's the case, we will not fear. Now, why is it significant that he's talking about the earth and the mountains and the ocean? It's because those things are dependable, by and large, aren't they? They're dependable to be there. They're stable in the sense that you don't go to the beach, like so many of us do, like many of us probably are this morning, trying to beat the Bakersfield heat. You don't watch the sunset on the beach and then go to bed in your hotel room or your beach house or your RV or whatever and go, you know, Lord, I sure pray the ocean is there tomorrow morning when I wake up again. You've never prayed that, have you? Why? Because there it is. The tides come and go. It's not that the ocean doesn't change, but you're not worried about it just disappearing. The same thing with mountains, right? If you're out hiking in the Colorado Rockies and you're in a tent, you go to bed, you don't pray, Lord, please let the Rockies be there when I wake up in the morning. That's ridiculous. I'm I'm looking at you guys and you're laughing. Why? Because the mountains are there. And the same thing with the earth. You don't worry about, I don't know, I'm going to take this next step. Is the earth going to be there when I do? These are things we take for granted. They're stable. They're dependable. And here's what the psalmist is saying. Even if and even when those things that are most dependable and most stable in life are shaken and seem to completely fall apart, we will not fear because God has a proven track record of always being a refuge and strength and available help to his people. And he doesn't change. His creation, it does. It's mutable. But he is immutable. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And you know why God doesn't change? He has no need to change. When you're perfect, what do you need to change for? What are you going to go from a state of perfection to what? A greater perfection? That's not even a thing. So God doesn't change. And so he's always been 
the refuge and strength and help of his people. And so he's going to continue to be. And so even when my world gets flipped upside down. Haven't you heard people say that? Tragedy strikes. I read some article this past week. A family received a terrible, terrible diagnosis of one of their children. And the first words out of the mother's mouth when she was interviewed was, our whole world was flipped upside down. And that's what the metaphorically in part the psalmist is talking about. Though our world be completely flipped upside down, we will not be afraid because of who God is. He's with us and he's for us. And so we do not need to fear. A great example of this that I was reminded of in the life of one of the Lord's saints is someone who I'm sure you're familiar with, Elizabeth Elliot. She's written a great deal of books. She's done a lot of interviews. I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with who she is. But she endured the tragedy of outliving two husbands. I'm sure you are aware of the first one. Her first husband was the missionary Jim Elliott, who, along with some fellow male missionaries, was seeking to make contact with the Alka tribe in Ecuador. And that contact did not go well. And Jim Elliott and his comrades were killed at the hands of these Alka people. Now, incredibly enough, if you know their story, Elizabeth Elliot was able to go back to that very people group who killed her husband, and those very men, with their very hands who killed her husband, she saw receive the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and become believers. And she had the privilege of sharing that gospel with the same men who killed her husband and his friends. But you can imagine the tragedy that that was. And then she got married a second time later on in life to someone you probably don't know, a theologian named Addison Leach. And she had the tragedy of watching him slowly, slowly, slowly over time just be eaten up with cancer. He died very, very, very painfully. And as she reflects on this tragedy that she endured and the grief that she had to go through, of losing two husbands in this way, she said she found great comfort in Psalm 46. This is what she says. She said, Everything that has seemed most dependable has given way. That's what the psalmist is talking about. Mountains are falling. Earth is reeling. And here's what she says. In such a time, it is a profound comfort To know that though all things seem to be shaken, one thing is not. God is not shaken. That's where we rest our head, brothers and sisters. When our world is flipped upside down, everything seems to be shaken and destroyed and tragically lost. And yet, the Lord does not change. And so we will not fear. Because he is with us, he is for us, as our refuge. Now again, where do we find the ultimate fulfillment of God being our refuge for us, our strength exceedingly available to us? We see that ultimately realized in the giving of his son. The second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because what's the greatest trouble any human being has? 
any fallen human being has. The greatest tribulation that we have, so says Augustine, rightly so, in his commentary on Psalm 46, is that we have sinned against a holy God and we owe him a debt that we can never pay back. And so we are objects of his wrath in this life and we will be objects of his wrath for all eternity. Unless... (laughs) He provides a refuge, and he has. In his son, in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection and ascension. So we now find refuge in him. The refuge that our souls need. And so we know the blessing that Psalm 2.12 talks about. You're familiar with Psalm 2, the nation's rage. The kings come together and plot against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us cast their bonds off of us. Let us find a way to get out from under the law of the Lord and be a law unto ourselves. We want to be God. That was where each and every one of us once was. And yet, what are we commanded to do? Kiss the son. Swear fealty to him. Submit yourself to him. Because if you don't, his anger is quickly kindled and he will destroy you. But then the psalm ends in verse 12 saying what? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so this is the good news of the gospel. We're able to hide ourselves from the wrath of God because God has lovingly and graciously given us a refuge for our weary souls in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we're able to say, Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood be of sin. The double cure cleanse me of its guilt and power. That's our testimony. Now here's the thing. This has implications for anybody here this morning who may be an unbeliever. And I don't rejoice to tell you this news, but it's true. You're in the Psalm 2 nations and kings raging against God, and you will find no refuge. Yes, you may distract yourself with something that seemingly is a refuge for your soul in the here and now. But you know what's going to happen at the end of all things? When you die, naked you came into the world, naked you will leave it. You will stand before God, and none of those false refuges will be there. You will have to stand before him and give an account and you will not be able to endure his justice and righteousness and you will be cast into hell for all eternity. Hear that and despair. Despair of any effort to find any other refuge and look to Jesus in faith. Fly to him. You have no other hope apart from him. He is the only mediator between God and man. So abandon any other refuge and fly to Christ. And believers, here's the glorious good news. We don't just have a refuge for our souls in this life so that we're able to commune with God. We have a refuge to look forward to in the life to come. He is our refuge now, and he will be our refuge then. The only reason that we'll be able to stand before the judgment throne of God is not because we're somehow better than the unbelievers around us, but simply because of God's grace towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has provided us a refuge in his Son. And so rejoice in that. And in the meantime, 
It is our privilege to rest in God alone, not to look to this creation, not to look to any created thing for refuge or strength or help, but to look to Him alone, because all created things change. They're here today and gone tomorrow. You can't depend upon them. They'll let you down. They may promise a lot, but they won't deliver on the goods. But God will fulfill all of his promises. And you can take that to the bank because he doesn't change. He's perfect. And so he will always be your refuge and strength. And so we can let all of these other things go. And we can sing as Luther did. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever. So we've seen how God is our refuge. He's with us. He's for us as our refuge. Second of all, let's look at how he is with us and for us as our help. Let's look first there at verses 4 and 5 to see how he is our help. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Wow, what a change of tempo, huh? Do you feel everything just sort of ah, slow down? <laughs> I mean, in verses 1 through 3, the whole creation is being undone. And then it's like our attention is being drawn up to Jerusalem, where God dwells with his people. And there's this river that's flowing peacefully, gently, making glad, happy, the city of God. What a contrast to what's happening in the rest of the earth. And this river and stream language is really important, brothers and sisters. So we're going to dwell on this for a little bit. We're going to meditate on this a bit. Waters are really important in the ancient world, first of all, because when you're building a city, it's really important that you have a water source. And it's even better if you can have that water source going right through the middle of your city. And so often in the ancient world, what you see is that they would look for places to build a city where there was a water source. And they would build their city around that so that they could have water to drink and take care of the waste that they need to get rid of and water their crops and so on and so forth. You need water. So that's where you build your city. And so symbolically, this river, this stream that runs through the city of God, the people of God, is showing that God is blessing his people. But it's so much more than that. The blessing is specifically that he is with them. That's what rivers and streams symbolically all throughout Scripture represent to us. God is present with his people, and that brings incredible blessing. So we don't have time to, to look at all the passages where this is referenced, but let's just let our minds go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. Hopefully that's not too hard for you. It wasn't that long ago that we were in Genesis chapter 2 as a church. And you remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, what is flowing through Eden? A river. A river is. Now, don't misunderstand me. A river was actually flowing through Eden, okay? I'm not denying that. What this also symbolically represents to us, though, at another level, is what? God is present with his people, and they're blessed to know him. 
They've been blessed with the blessing of God being with them. That's why God put them in the garden, that they might dwell in his presence under his rule and authority. And yet, what happens at the fall? Adam and Eve disobey God. They're kicked out of the garden, and they're no longer in his presence. They're no longer in Eden. They no longer have access to God's presence. They don't have access to this river or this stream anymore. And so then let's fast forward a whole lot and skip a ton of passages that have to do with this and jump to Ezekiel chapter 47. In Ezekiel chapter 47, Ezekiel sees this vision of the temple. And do you know what's flowing through the temple? What's flowing through the temple is a river. Gently flowing river. What is being shown to us here? God wants to dwell with his people. He's pursuing them. Though they've sinned and rebelled against them and he kicked them out of the garden, now he gives them a tabernacle and a temple so he can dwell with them. And this river running through the temple shows God dwells with his people. Now we jump to the very end of the Bible and we get to the best part. Jesus has come back by Revelation 22 and we're shown this glorious vision of the throne and the one who sits on it and the lamb and what's issuing forth from the throne. Do you remember? Revelation chapter 22, verse one, a river is flowing. It's watering the tree of life. And what is this representing to us? It's flowing through the people of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, us in our glorified state with him and he is with us as We were created to be in his presence and worship him perfectly forever. And so what are we being shown here with this river and this stream? Why is she not moved? Verse 5, why are the people of God, the city of God, not moved? Because God is in the midst of her. She knows the blessing of God's presence. And so guess what? It's that same word in Hebrew for the mountains tremble. And we're going to see the kingdoms totter. And yet we look at the city of God, the people of God, and they're not shaken. They're not moved. Why? Because God is not moved and he is in her midst to bless her and uphold her and keep her. And so we see that God is her help in this way. He's in her midst to help her. And he helps her specifically against her enemies. And we see that at the very tail end of verse 5. Look at the second half of verse 5. God will help her when morning dawns. Now let's look at verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. Now just think about salvation history for a second. Throughout the Bible, When does salvation, big historical salvation events, happen to God's people? Well, think about when God's people crossed the Red Sea. Remember, they walk across as if on dry land. And then the Egyptians are like, hey, let's do the same thing. This seems kind of weird, but let's do it. And then what happens? They're crossing it in the night, the Israelites are. And then morning dawns. And what happens? The waters come caving in, crashing down on the Egyptians, and their enemies are completely wiped out. God is the help of his people Israel against their enemies. Think about Jesus. After he dies on the cross, his disciples are completely dejected. We thought he was the one, and then he goes and gets killed. We all know that anyone who dies on the tree is cursed. So I guess he's not the Messiah. 
And then when in Matthew 28 does Jesus rise from the dead? It's at dawn. It's in the morning. And so what are we being shown here? God is going to help his people, his bride, the city of God, his church, against her enemies. He is going to deliver them. And we see that in verse 6. The nations are raging. That word rage there is in Hebrew is the same word as the oceans, the waters roaring. And so we have the oceans roaring against God's people. We have the enemies of God's people roaring and raging against them, wanting to destroy them. And then what happens to the kingdoms? The kingdoms totter, verse 6. Again, totter is that same word in verse 5, that she shall not be moved. And in verse 3, though the mountains tremble. And so God's enemies are being shaken. He's shaking them up as they're trying to attack his people, his church. And then what happens? Look at the second half of verse 6. He utters his voice and the earth melts. God simply has to speak a word. And he comes to the help of his people and destroys their enemies. That's not too much for God. Remember, he created everything out of nothing by simply speaking a word. And so now he defeats his enemies and the enemies of his people by speaking a word. And why do his people have this kind of help? Look at verse 7. Because the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Who is the Lord of hosts? The Lord of hosts is the Lord of armies of angels. He is the Lord of hosts who's in control of all things. He's in control of whatever happens in nature, even if all things come undone. He's in control of our enemies. And he has condescended the creator and sustainer and sovereign of all to come and dwell with us as our helper. And he's the God of Jacob. He's our fortress. Remember what a mess Jacob was? What a mess. And yet God does incredible work in his life and continues the family line that will eventually result in the birth of the Messiah through the promise given first to Adam. And then to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on and so forth. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so this is why he's helping us in these ways. And yet, where do we ultimately find God's help? What's the ultimate manifestation of God's help? It's the giving of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because isn't Jesus God with us? Emmanuel? It's what we celebrate at Advent, what we should celebrate all year long, that God gave his son to dwell with us, to be our help. Because you see, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of cloud by night and the tabernacle and the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, all of those were just types and shadows showing us, yes, God is with us, but then the ultimate reality of those things has come when the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, takes on flesh and dwells among us. It's why our hearts rejoice when we hear John 1.14, don't they? And the Word, that is the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt literally tabernacled or templed among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son of God. And why has he come? To glorify God and to be our help. And how has he been our help? 
Well, Jesus says that he came to be what? The good shepherd, John 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And how does the good shepherd care for his sheep? Psalm 23, he leads them beside still waters, streams, rivers. He takes his sheep, he takes his flock, and he causes the rivers, the waters to flow among them. You see what I'm getting at here? God dwells with his people in his son. And the son gives us means of grace to communicate with him. We don't have immediate access to God like we did in the garden and like we will at the end of all things after Jesus comes back. It's all mediated. It's all through means that he's appointed. His word, the sacraments, baptism. These are the means that God has given us and through which he communes and fellowships with us. That's why the church has always said, if you don't have the word preached, if you don't have the elements given, if you're not doing baptism, you're not even a church. Because these are so essential to Christ's church and he's given them to be a help to us. Through them, through these still waters, if you will, we commune and fellowship With God Almighty. And you see, here's the thing. We've got to go a level deeper. Because do you know what these waters always symbolized throughout Scripture? God's presence, particularly in the giving of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Now you say, where do you get that? It's a great question. Listen to what Jesus says at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles in John chapter 7. Verses 37 through 39. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now listen to this. Now this he said about the Spirit. And your translation probably capitalizes Spirit and rightly so. Whom those who believed in him, in Jesus, were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But now Jesus is glorified. He's died, he's raised, he's ascended to the Father's right hand, and he's been given the new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit. And we see at Pentecost, he pours out the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, when God regenerates us, dwells within us. And he is what? He's our helper. He's our comforter. He leads us and guides us and uses the means of grace that God has given so that we're conformed more to his image and drawn into closer fellowship with him and with one another. Brothers and sisters, do you see? We're just scratching the surface here. Do you see the help that our God who is with us and for us is to us in his son and by his spirit? It should leave us speechless. And here's the thing, it's our privilege, it's our privilege and calling to suffer in a fallen world where our world is flipped upside down, in a world where we have enemies at every corner trying to destroy us. It's our privilege in the midst of that to find abundant, exceedingly available help in our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I love how John Chrysostom He's that golden-tongued bishop of the 4th and 5th century. He said about Psalm 46, 
He, that is God, does not prevent tribulations from coming. But he is at hand when they come. Making us tried and tested. Now listen to what he says here. Providing greater encouragement from the assistance than the pain from the tribulations. The assistance he provides us with, you see, is not simply as much as the nature of the trouble requires, but more, abundantly more, exceedingly more. And so even as our enemies rage, we don't have to fear. Why? Because it may not feel like it. And you may not be able to see it But God is giving you abundantly more help and assistance and care than you can possibly imagine. And it far outweighs the loss and the pain and the grief. And so we rejoice to know that God is with us and for us as our help and as our refuge. And lastly, and this one will go more quickly, God is with us and for us as our peace. Look at verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. Now, I love this language here because it's like a summons. It's a summons to come and get your eyes off of your present, off of your world being flipped upside down. Get your eyes off of your enemies raging against you, nipping at your heels, death coming for you. Get your eyes off of all of that and using prophetic language, he says, come and behold the end of all things. Because what is the end of all things? The end of all things is that the Lord brings desolation on the earth. He is going to bring a final triumph over all of his enemies. It's going to bring about peace. A peace through superior firepower, if you will. It's not going to be a peace where all of the enemies get together and hold hands and sing, Kumbaya, my Lord. That's not how it's going to end. You know how it's going to end? Look at verse 9. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. So who brings this lasting peace? Who ends wars on all the earth? Wasn't that World War I? Wasn't that the war to end all wars? Whoops, we had a second world war, didn't we? Haven't had a third one, but give it time. I don't know, who knows? But what's the point? Who brings lasting peace? Who destroys all of his enemies and then destroys all of those weapons of warfare as well? Destroying them, breaking them, burning them. It's God himself. And so brothers and sisters, I just very briefly want to make this application. Please don't be duped in believing any politician or religious leader, any human being save the God-man Jesus Christ who promises you that they can bring peace, that they can bring about lasting change and hope and... No. No. War will be with us. Unrest will be with us until who comes back? Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And when he comes back, what's going to happen? Every enemy is crushed and destroyed. So don't believe 
the lies of any human being who says, I can bring peace, I can bring... No, you can't. Only the Lord can. And so we're to get our eyes off of the present and relish in the end of all things. We know how the story ends, but until that day comes, it's our privilege and we are commanded to rest in God in the midst of life's troubles. And so that's the implication. Look at the implication in verse 10. And before I read it, I just want you to note, I'm sure in your translation, aren't there quotation marks at the beginning and the end of verse 10? Just as a little hint, in the Hebrew, there are no quotation marks. So the, the translators are putting those there. And I think this is helpful because a new speaker is being introduced. And who's the speaker? It's God himself. And here's what he says. Be still. I read that loudly and startled you for a reason. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Now as we read this, the question that commentators have struggled with is, okay, so who is the Lord addressing here? Is he addressing unbelievers? Those outside of the covenant community? Those who rebel against the covenant Lord? Who are like the Psalm 2 nations raging and plotting in vain? Is he addressing them, or is he addressing folks within the covenant who are covenantally faithful and walking with the Lord? Who's he addressing? And honestly, I'm just going to tell you, I don't think we have to pick. (laughs) I think there's a message here for believers and unbelievers. Let's start with believers. The message to believers is cease, desist, knock it off, stop fretting. Don't you know who I am? And so it's so funny to me that we like to, and if you have any of these, don't take this the wrong way, but it's funny to me that we slap be still and know that I am God on everything. You drink your coffee in the morning out of the be still and know that I'm God mug, and it's plastered up on your wall in a picture frame, and you've maybe got a sweatshirt, your real snuggly sweatshirt that you read your devotions in, and it's like, that is not the point. It's not like chill and just relax and just meditate. No, I mean... I might get in trouble for this later, but it's basically like saying, shut up. So you're like plastering shut up on your coffee cup and your sweatshirt and putting it up at your house. That's what God is essentially saying. Shh. Don't you know who I am? Christian, stop fretting. Christian, stop worrying. Christian, stop taking in everything around you and going, oh my goodness, what is happening? Shut your mouth. And know that I am God. It's kind of what happens to Job at the end of Job. I ask all these questions and God's like, where were you? Where are you? I shut my mouth. I close it. Your ways are mysterious to me. And so I close them. But that's the point. Stop fretting. Rest in me. Cease and desist all your vain attempts at trying to bring about your will and trust that I will bring about my will. That's the whole point. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In other words, Philippians 2.10 will happen so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is going to happen. Whether unbelievers do that They won't do that willingly. They'll do that unwillingly. It'll be so undeniable who Jesus is that they will have to fall against their will on their knees and say, we can't fight against this anymore. So believer, no, this is what's going to happen. 
We know the end of the story. So I already kind of gave away what the implication is for unbelievers. Stop fighting. Cease fighting. It's a fool's errand. Do you know who I am? It's like I'm, I'm holding you in my hand and you're trying to fight me and throw things at me. And when I could just let you go, I could crumple you up. I could destroy you. I'm the Lord of hosts. I'm the sovereign creator of all. And you're going to fight against me? Stop. 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 Shh. Submit. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Psalm 2. Unbelievers, knock it off. You're going to acknowledge who I am. I will be exalted. And so repent, stop, cease, desist. And why does the Lord bring about this peace amongst his people? Well, again, notice the refrain that we've already read in verse 7. We read it again in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And where do we see the ultimate reality of this peace? Again, brothers and sisters, let me turn your eyes towards our glorious, wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who brings us peace with God. We weren't any different than the unbelievers around us. We were warring against him, hating him, worthy of his wrath for all eternity in hell. And yet that war is over and there is now peace. Why? Romans 5 tells us, though we were once God's enemies, now through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God and are at peace with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is now peace in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension. We are at peace with God. And here's the thing, we're awaiting that full and final peace that is to come. When the Prince of Peace returns a second time, he comes not to lay down his life the second time. He comes not as a slain lamb. He's going to come as a ravaging lion who will cut down his enemies. That's how the peace comes. He crushes all opposition. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry, but Scripture makes it abundantly clear. And so not sorry. Because what do we read in Daniel 2? Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has this vision about this statue that's made of different materials, and then this rock is taken out of a mountain without any hands. It's not carved out with hands. And then it smashes the statue, and then it's ground up to such fine dust that the wind blows it away as if that statue never existed. Well, who is that rock? It's Jesus. God's son, he comes and he smashes all the kingdoms of men. He will destroy them so that it's as if they never existed. And what's the image we get of Jesus when he comes back the second time? For crying out loud, symbolically in Revelation, he's got a white robe on and he's crushing his enemies under his feet and their blood is splattering on his white robe. Or do you remember the almost anticlimactic Ending of all things in Revelation chapter 20. All of the enemies of God's people gather together. And they're about to attack. And then what happens? Jesus sends fire from heaven and they're just consumed and that's the end. It's like, oh man, wow, whoa. That's incredible. The enemies are going to be destroyed. The peace will be established by all opposition being completely and utterly crushed. And so that's what we're waiting for, brothers and sisters. 
And we're to be about sharing the gospel with God's enemies until that great day comes. But do you see the peace that is ours? And the peace that we have to look forward to when we'll rule and reign with Jesus for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. But do you see the point of this entire passage? What is the point? God is with us in his Son and by his Spirit to be our refuge, to be our help, and to be our peace. And since God is with us and God is for us, who can be against us? So brothers and sisters, as bad as things look and as bad as they will likely get in your life, do not fear. Be courageous. Continue to march towards Zion because God is with us and God is for us. And as we do so, we can sing along with Luther as we're about to in just a moment. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same, he does not change, and he shall win the battle. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your incomparable word and the incredible realities that it teaches us. Lord, we tremble before you. We're brought low before you because we know who we are, we know who you are, and yet our hearts soar as well, knowing that you've graciously saved us, redeemed us in your Son, indwelt us by your Holy Spirit, and that you're with us and for us as our refuge, our helper, and our peace. So Lord, we do pray that individually and as a church, since we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we would not fear, but continue courageously to share the gospel with everyone around us and do whatever it takes for our part to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth so that your enemies bow willingly in this life as you change their hearts rather than at the end of all things unwillingly when they have no other choice. Father, we're thankful for this time. We pray that you would build us up and send us out in your world to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.